Hi unicorns! I'm Big Mountain Skier and adventurer, Lindsay Dyer, checking in this week from Japan. I am so lucky. <laughs> this is the Showing Up Podcast, conversations with real-life people making a life in the outdoors to inspire you to embrace your weird, do that thing, even if you suck at it, and fully show up for this one wild and precious life. It's, it's a little bit upside down backwards too, because actually what we're doing now, if you just follow the supply chain of virtually, not quite everything, but virtually everything that we make, sell and buy, um, what you find is we are stealing the future and we're selling it in the present, we're calling it GDP. So we're just kind of putting off the day of reckoning. That was author, environmentalist, and my dear friend, Paul Hawken. Let me ask you, what would you guess is the number one way to reduce carbon and begin to shift global warming? You might have said something around cleaning up fossil fuels. And though that's part of it, the actual number one way to get us all moving in the right direction, drum roll, refrigerator management. Yeah, I had no idea. And that is one reason I love his new book, Drawdown. After that, and just the top six to give you an idea, wind, time, uh, wind turbines, <laughs> reduced food waste, adoption of a plant-rich diet, tropical forest restoration, Number six out of the top 10, which we'll talk about in this episode, educating girls. Yeah, not what you'd think when considering solutions for climate change. That's what I love about my friend Paul and his book, Drawdown. After reading it for the first time and reaching out to see if I could help spread his message, he called me up himself. Uh, we've been friends ever since, and I'm doing everything I can to help us all spread the message of what we truly can do to start shifting things. This episode will definitely be about climate change, but not in the familiar doom and gloom way that we've been accustomed to hearing about. There's actual real change going on, and it's very exciting, and you're going to want to listen to this one. Paul not only founded Erewhon, the first food company in the U.S. to rely completely on sustainable agriculture, but he's served on boards of the Point Foundation, which publishes Whole Earth Catalogs, the Center for Plant Conservation, the Trust for Public Land, and the National Audubon Society. Yeah, <laughs> we dive into how you discuss something that threatens not only human health, but the health of our planet. I know that's a heavy subject, but I promise we talk about it in a way that you don't see on the nightly news, a way that goes beyond the problems that global warming is causing and how we can actually reverse it. Paul is practical and hopeful, and his take on global warming is so exciting. Drawdown is the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. What's so refreshing and so helpful about his take on this issue is not just the specific actions he proposes, but the way he thinks about the issue. That viewpoint comes across from a lifetime of innovation and creativity and working with an incredible team around the world. So we're sitting in a beautiful hotel room in uh, Denver at the outdoor retailer. And I'm so excited to be sitting next to my friend and family member, <laughs> Paul Hawken. Is it Hawkins or Hawken? It's uh, K-E-N, Hawken, which is Cornish. Uh -huh. And Hawkins, K-I-N-S, is English. And Hawkins means kin of Henry, King Henry. And Hawken, 
I don't know what it means, but it doesn't mean kin of anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing I asked that one. Yeah. <laughs> I Gosh, I feel like I know so much now. I, I'm going to have to go back. But essentially, Paul has written one of the greatest books of our time and certainly the most... Well, it just did so well on the... Oh, just help me out here. <laughs> Draw down. Draw down the book. It's so interesting, this story. It's about you know reversing global warming. We'll talk about that. But the backstory is that my editor of 25 years, and with him I've had four New York Times bestsellers. So I'm not a schlump. You know, I mean, in other words, <laughs> it's like... <laughs> not a schlump. Did, did you say schlum? Schlump, yeah. A schlump. <laughs> no, you are far from that. Well, you know, Shmiel, whatever it is. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not Jewish, but Yiddish is cool. <laughs> and so I got a text from my editor. said, have you read my email? And no, he said, go ahead and read it. And it said, this is the first week the book is out. You're number, we're number nine on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. And it was so great. And uh, for the house, he said, we're dancing in the streets at, at Penguin mm. in New York. But because I think they felt that they was a big should risk. publish it, but they were taking a risk. Right. And and it went into seven printings right after that. Boom, wow. boom, boom, boom. And seven months, and the seventh printing was 31,000 copies. So actually the sales have been going up ever since it was published. So, yeah. That's so symbolic of everything that the book talks about as well, which is, is taking a risk for what we know. It's essentially so much of our pocketbooks, right, are connected to hurting the planet and even though we all we all want what's best for the planet we are afraid that if we start to take these major risks that we'll be hurt and that we'll pay uh, we'll pay the consequences for it and that was that's so symbolic of of the risk that we're all asking being asked to to make in our own way yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit upside down backwards, too, because actually what we're doing now, if you just follow the supply chain of virtually, not quite everything, but virtually everything that we make, sell, and buy, um, what you find is we are stealing the future, mm-hmm. and we're selling it in the present. We're calling it GDP. And so we're just kind of putting off the day of reckoning. He means oil. He means all of our natural resources. Well, selling yeah, the future. Well, yeah, forests, <laughs> our soil, our land, mm-hmm. our oceans, uh, our people, mm-hmm. and obviously our atmosphere and climate. And and really, the book Dwaran is about regenerative development. I mean, ninety-eight of the one hundred solutions are about regeneration, which is that it's really about healing the future and selling it in the mm-hmm. present. I mean, mm-hmm. we have to make a living, we work, and actually um, call that GDP as well, but you can do either one, you can choose, and really, it's about that flip that we're talking about, which is, yes, we need an economy, we need jobs, we need you know to raise the standard of living for most people in the world, not to lower it, but how do we do that in such a way that actually is in alignment with right. life itself? A, a long-term Yeah, goal. and short for that matter, because right. human health and children and, you know, our water and our air. So short, medium, long term. Yeah. So I want to get into your backstory and how you got here. But I'm also curious, with four bestsellers, how has publishing shifted over that time? Because it seems like it has changed so much. It has. Well, first there's e-books, and, you know, for, for example, which devastated the industry for a while. 
Um, and why was that? Well, just me? that they're electronic and they were the Amazon really set the price on it, you uh-huh. know, nine ninety five, and it really took away a lot of profits. Um, the other thing is when I first started writing, maybe there's thirty plus thousand books were published every year, mm-hmm. and now there's one hundred and seventy five thousand. It seems like every baby boomer has a uh, a book on its bucket list, you know, right. like this is what they want to do. I mean, right. write one, and they do. And and so I think the industry is dealing with a glut at the same time they're dealing with Amazon, which sells 40% of the books. So it's a, it's a tough business right now for publishers. And I'm very fortunate that I started early and you know, have a track record, and so now it's, it's, easy, it's easier for me. I have an audience, you know, I mean, but... And you're established. Yeah, but <clears throat> but yeah. for someone who's got a book, a good book, it's like harder. how would you cut through the noise and actually? Well, it has to be very, very good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it's hard for people to understand that so many of the books are derivative of Me Too, and they don't know it. They don't mm. really know it. And I remember one of my spiritual teachers saying, "Read the book that saves you from reading twenty other books. You know, <laughs> go upstream to the origin of ideas or thoughts or." ways of seeing the world you know go upstream and they may not be contemporary books mm-hmm. they may be can you name a few of those in your you well, found that are the origins well i mean um all of aldo leopold's work sand county almanac uh, think like a mountain you know i have um, that on one of my hats yeah <laughs> uh, mm. um just it's just there's so much it's just a tower of babel out there in terms of books um, and also there's this idea that somehow if somebody's been successful in the world, that if you read about their success, that's going to rub off on you. And that's not really true. Absolutely. <laughs> not really yeah. true. And you can learn a lot from biographies, for sure, autobiographies. They're some of my favorite reading. But, um, but I think success books and guru books and you know, how-to books and you can have the life you always wanted, books, you know, all that sort of stuff, really sort of permeates the field right now. And... Uh, it's a narcissistic time. Wow. It's so fascinating to look into another industry through through you. Because yeah. I think you're right. Everyone has the idea that they're going to re- write a book. It's on the bucket list. Yeah. And so they're doing it. Yeah. And this is, this is the outcome. Um, <laughs> this is the outcome of telling everyone they can do it. You know, I, one of my messages is if, if we all could get into nature you know, the world would be a better place. Oh, we no would. question about that. But then again, I'm like, well, the, the real implications of that are trampling <laughs> outside of trails and trash and, and more people in the woods means, you know, more pressure on the wildlife. And so it's almost like, oh, wow, you know. Do I really want them out there? <laughs> it, all of us as an outdoor industry are having that, that conversation now, like, oh, wow, there are implications to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The vandalism alone, you know, of of these sacred places, um, yeah, monuments, and, and traffic, and yeah. um, so. Well, yeah. what we have to do is bring nature to the people, and you know, um, make our cities forests, and mm. and you know, not make them green like in the conventional use of the word, but literally green. Mm-hmm. And so that vertical, yeah, so that children, or anybody, but especially children wherever they are, wherever they grow up, wherever they live, you know, they're in nature as opposed to nature's out there somewhere. Mm-hmm, and separate. Yeah, separate. Mm-hmm. And scary. Yeah. I remember once we had a uh, a Buddhist refuge center in, in the Vallecitos, you know, New Mexico, in the National Forest, and 
we had some people coming from uh, the Bronx, and um, they were, we had there was an old actually Boy Scout uh, Scout Lodge that had uh, during the Depression, and then that was a Buddhist refuge, and people a couple people from the Bronx would not get off the porch mm-hmm. because they were afraid of bears, you know, and that comes in. Lord knows TV or something that you know. I mean, it's so interesting how that the the urban rural divide is uh, manifests itself actually as this paranoia and fear of nature. You know, and boy, that's hard. You know, when you're trying to get people to understand, you know, public lands and conservation, and and that our resources should really go to that. You really need to get people to to have the experience of the beauty and the and the um, um, the transcendence that happens you know wherever you are whether it's ocean mountain river plains meadows wherever you are where you're seeing something with new eyes you know and you're seeing a world not made by man nothing you see is made by humans mm. you know and that's such a a, 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 a different world, you know. Mm-hmm. And humans are s- so used to being around everything human made that they get uncomfortable when it's not that. And I just I've seen again and again, you know, just like if we, especially our children, we get them out there, you know. It's not. It's really no, that thing about you know uh, leave no child inside. Really, not just mm-hmm. you know. I mean, you know. Wow, I've, I've never considered that perspective. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thanks. Well, so so take me back to where, like, give us. Let's start from the beginning. Um, how did you How did you get here? Well, that was one way that being <clears throat> outside a lot. And right. I think a lot of people can relate to that. The mountain treated everyone the same, economically, what you look like, what you were wearing. Yeah. No judgment. And it still does, and I, it's such an evening, even playing field out there and I think that's even what why some of the most successful people are still drawn to it because it kicks your ass <laughs> and it it tunes you yeah I mean if you approach it that way it also you know sings to you and, yeah absolutely and, and lulls you to sleep and you know you breathe differently and your dreams are different and you know, so. <laughs> no it's all those things which yeah. is so great there's no mean girls in in the <laughs> mountains <laughs> no. but yeah so so t- teach me show me where where did it start i think i mean i mean outside but also it started with my my mom loved birds and so we were bird savers you know we would save birds and so we always had these birds around and to this day, I have birds around, not inside, outside, you know. But just, I remember was going to Japan, and I was telling a teacher there about birds, and he said, oh, yes, they're, they're messengers from heaven, <laughs> like, Aww. as a matter of fact. <laughs> so sweet. Love but it. I actually think he's right in some ways. They're, they're messengers from heaven. But, um, but it was, again, um, growing up and seeing, like, harm and hurt, and, you know, those birds were hurt, Usually, because of a human-made cause, as opposed to it could be poisons and um, it could pesticides, it could be fish hooks in the mouth of a cormorant, you know, and on, or on the wing, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, flopping on the beach, you know. Um, sometimes you didn't even know what the cause was; you just had to nurse it back to health, you know. Um, and you grew up where? I grew up in California. I grew up in uh, 
San Francisco Bay Area, mm-hmm. and then in in the Valley as well, um, San Joaquin Valley, and then just feeling that affinity, you know, with creatures, and not feeling the same affinity for office buildings and hospitals and doctors. I grew up with asthma. I really had asthma all my life until 20. And so I learned to profoundly distrust um, the medical establishment. Mm-hmm. I really, I really like, I just thought it, I didn't, uh, to this day actually. And uh, um, so it, by the time I was six, I, if, if a building had a receptionist, I wouldn't go into it. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's like, had this allergy, you know, to being poked and prodded and x-rayed and shot and scratched mm. and you know I just like I don't want to go there but I think that having it and growing up with it and then discovering at 1920 that if I changed my diet that it went away which only amplified my distrust of the medical establishment which is if it was that simple and easy why don't you tell me sooner because they mm. don't know mm. you know asthma is incurable and it's mm. very curable and um, so Again, so that married me to food in a way that I had, I was not really, I wasn't connected to it. I was just eating American diet. And, um, and that took me into natural foods, which took me into farms or farming, organic farming. And once again, I saw the, the divide. I had started a company called Erwan, and, and by the time I left, seven plus years later, we had about 30 five, six, seven, I don't know, thousand acres under contract to farmers. I remember being in Louisiana and having a, a, a farmer down there and we were driving along. Uh, he was, I was in the truck and I saw a dead pelican. Uh, why, you know? And he said, oh, you know, they're eating, they're eating the rice seeds, you know, not his, but the rice seeds, you know, and said, Okay. Well, so he said, well, they're all coated with captan, you know, which is a fungicide, which is mercury, you know. And uh, and, uh, and again, it's one of those moments, you know, and you're just seeing that pel- big, beautiful birds, you know, prehistoric birds, and you're going by, you know, just like as mm. you know, dead as could be. And it made such a big impression on me because then that the food environment, you know, that, that connection became so clear. And sometimes it does take that, you know, the image or something that um, it's kind of, like I said, searing image, you know. And being a bird lover, lover, and, and, you know, it just, it really hit me strong. So, you know, I spent seven years really developing those acreage and working with farmers to grow food organically. And so that was another sort of threshold or passage and then that developed into, I think it was 1974 at Stanford Research Institute. And my then friend, but later co-author, Peter Schwartz, explained global warming to me. And there was a bunch of people there who understood it. Understood it very well. Everything he explained then, in terms of the biophysics, the chemistry, and so forth, is just as true now as it was then. We knew the causes and even the implications, you know. And so that went in strongly. However, um, 
I I didn't think I knew enough. I, it was science and this, and I didn't really feel like I had a, a voice or something to say. And then, you know, in 89 and 92, you had Bill McKibben's book, End of Nature, and you had uh, Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance, two amazing books. Really, really, you know, trailblazing books and well-written and well-researched. And, um, and I said, well, these guys have it going, you know, so I, I never... I'd always refer to it in, you know, ecology of commerce and natural capitalism, but I didn't really go into climate because I felt like other people were had it. No, it was checked. That, the yeah, box was checked. Yeah, that box was checked, yeah. And, uh, but then it started to change in 2001, and, and um, that was, you know, about a decade after those books came out about... And the third IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessment, came out. And it was more pessimistic than the second, which mm-hmm. was more pessimistic than the first. And for two reasons. One is the science was getting better. And what was consensus on the second became accepted. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, what wasn't included in the consensus in the second then became you know, science in the third, et cetera, you know, that's the way it's always gone because there's no such thing as consensus science. Mm-hmm. Science is evidentiary. It's not consensus. It's not, the, okay, we'll take the extremes and, you know, cut it down the middle. And that. <laughs> That's not science. And um, so it's always been a compromise with, you know, Russia and Venezuela and China and Saudi Arabia. You know, it's always been sort of tamped down in the summary statements and, but anyway, I read it, and the summary, not the whole thing, and and at that time, the uh, carbon mitigation project came out from Princeton, and it was like, everybody thought, wow, this is a way to stabilize emissions by 2050, and there's the global wedges, which is a term they coined, pie-shaped things, eight of which, if we did, would stabilize emissions, and of these eight, they were comprised of 15 different solutions, you know, and so... Everybody was talking about it, and there was kind of like a sense of, well, we know what to do. So I read it, and I looked at it, and I was really surprised because 11 of the 15 solutions could only be done or approved, if you will, by the boards of directors of very conservative, uh, large corporations, utilities primarily, energy companies, a car company, a plants company, and it's like, and and they were all underwater financially. That is to say that if they did them, they would be spent. They were spending their balance sheet, and you know, which is fiduciarily irresponsible, because there was no prospect of it ever making money at that time. And that's when I thought, whoa, where are we in all this? You know, I mean, there's two things we could do. We could put a solar panel on our roof then, and we could drive less. That was the two things an individual could do out, mm-hmm. of, out of the 15 and. And uh, and that's when I started. That's when Drawdown started in my mind. I went around and said, "Can we like? There's got to be more. Map measure, map measure, model everything we know to do about reversing global warming." And also, that's when I started to name the goal because, Mm. you know, stabilization was not a a mitigation, stabilization reduction didn't seem like a very uh, interesting goal given that you know we were surpassing CO2 levels in the atmosphere. Um, that had not been attained for 15 million years. <laughs> I thought we should 
So I want to get to that. Like, yeah. So this this was always your passion, and you've never had a boss. I love that. Oh no. <laughs> Where did that drive come from? That self motivation, entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, it came from. I left home at fourteen, so it was actually it came from pragmatism. It didn't come from. You know, I had to I had to take care of myself since I was fourteen. So I learned to do that, and you know, once you do, then. Mm-hmm. It seems natural, you know. It's not like I don't like bosses. It's just that I wouldn't fit. You're unemployable. Totally, myself fact, included. <laughs> actually, there was a kind of a, a moment that I thought, well, I'm going to go look at the one ads, you know. And that at that time, <laughs> one ads were still in papers, in newspapers, you know. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it was like it was a Sunday one ad, so it's the big section, you know. And I went down every co- name and every column, and I realized there was I I I couldn't get a job. I didn't fit mm-hmm. in any category at all. Mm-hmm. And it's like, <laughs> I started to feel like insecure, like, oh my God, I was, went this way in my life and the right. world was going that way. You know? I think all of us feel like that at some, uh, in a lot of places, like we don't fit in. And yeah. and that that curse can also, that's our blessing too, yeah. is embracing no, no, that. It's, it's self-sufficiency. When did, you, when did you start? I mean, Feeling like I didn't fit in? Yeah. <laughs> oh, since the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, okay. Me too, but but like like high school or college or I mean, what point did you just like peel off? I well, I was a I, I was a pleaser. I kind of I did uh, I skied partially. Well, I ski raced. I was never super passionate about it. I ski raced as a means to continue skiing because I loved skiing. Uh, but I was always passionate about the powder skiing, and uh, I was a ski racer, and so. Um, so I loved getting out of school early to get to go skiing. And yes, it was training around gates, icy (laughs) gates, uh, every day after school, but it got us out of school and it got me away from the, the social, oh God, the toxic social. Yeah. I mean, I'm terrified of water coolers and, you know, in, uh, office buildings and and office politics and school politics and and I'm so thankful that I had sport to to get me out of all that cuz I'm so sensitive that uh I feel every every knife in my back you know yeah. and uh and so that was one thing that I'm so thankful for mother nature that she she gave me an excuse to be away from all that um Did you go to college? Or? Yep, I went to college uh uh, also continued ski racing on a ski uh, scholarship. <laughs> yep, on a ski scholarship, and yeah. then into the design program, and then, and then after my f- first year of of school, went to went away for a year to Italy to art school, mm. and uh, and that that year abroad showed me that one there was more to life than skiing. <laughs> yeah, there was an incredible world outside mm. where people never even talked about how much it snowed. And they could still, they were perfectly happy. <laughs> no jocks, nothing like, oh man, that was a great year. And then, but it also reinvigorated what I loved about skiing and the community and connecting with nature and making your own line down the mountain. And and that's when I came back and did the 180 into the big mountain realm. And that was probably the most powerful year of my life when I finally embraced everything that I was instead of feeling wrong for it or like I didn't fit in for it. Oh. Yeah. How about you? <laughs> I dropped out of high school and dropped out of college both. <laughs> <laughs> I got into college. But <laughs> I'm wow. T- I'm t- but I, I, I went to three colleges and 
I just felt like I wasn't learning enough, you know. I was I wanted to learn more faster, and I felt I was being bureaucratized, you mm -hmm. know, and processed, mm -hmm. you know, some classes shuffled through have a system, two hundred fifty people in it, and you know, the professor would show up, give a lecture, and then have you know, TAs, you know, pass out stuff, and it just felt like process. Oh yeah, yeah, and cattle. Yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. you know, and. I mean, obviously, if you stay in graduate school, then that's that's to change. But I guess I wasn't patient enough to do that. So. <laughs> yeah, after seeing all these all these films growing up, I assumed that college was this place where the teachers jumped on desks and they were so inspiring, and we <laughs> were going to change the world. And then when it was just like an extension of high school, I was I was super depressed when I first got to college. It, not only an extension, but bigger classes. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, the teacher the teacher. The teacher-to-student ratio in high school was, you know, not good. Thirty to one, you know, right? You go, mm -hmm. oh, that's like ridiculous. Then you get to college, and it's hundred to one, two hundred to one, five hundred to one. You know. I was lucky in my. I went to MSU in Bozeman. Um, Where you? MSU. Oh, yeah. yeah, and I, I would have, I would have uh, switched or or left if I hadn't found my uh, design professor, uh, and. Yeah. yeah, he's the reason I stayed. Jeff Conger, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's really cool. Um, I almost didn't end it by my senior year. I almost didn't graduate because I had missed so much school for skiing. And I was not his friend. <laughs> I was the bad kid. But then once he realized that I was actually following his uh, his principles of combining the things that you love with design, and I was doing that with skiing, uh, that I was actually following his way versus just skipping out on his class. Um, and now I continue to speak to his classes and have oh, ever nice. since. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, but that's a bit of a tangent. Well, the good thing about me growing up, though, is my father was a photographer. He worked at the University of California, Berkeley, and his whole friend network were artists, mm -hmm. singers and folk singers, some famous, and sculptors and painters and you know photographers Ansel Adams Brett Weston he was friends with people like that yeah wow. minor white uh, who else my gosh Imogen Cunningham and then Peter Volkus and Stephen Corn and Parks and so that was great because you know I felt like I had this strange image you know growing up in Berkeley that you know, the world had a lot of artists in it, and hmm. and then that's the way it was. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it was. I, I Free thinkers. Found out mm -hmm. later that wasn't true, but but I was around a lot of people who you know were just used their brain differently. You know, I don't want to go to right left brain kind of thing. It's sort of you know a little bit simplistic, but you know, problem solved through the imagination is through you know just sort of rational sequencing. So it it actually really opened up my mind to looking at things as a whole as systems and and looking uh, not for the obscure but for the obvious that wasn't seen mm -hmm. and then to me that's which is a little different you know I mean when you sometimes when you see a good idea it's like oh my god yes that's a great idea but why does you think it's a great idea right away because actually there's a part of you that already recognizes mm -hmm. it I know it's almost practical yeah it's it's and yeah. that is so reflects what your book talks about we're so used to seeing all this evidence and statistics and they're so hard to relate to and the way you you come about this topic it's so practical and obvious and yeah. it's so refreshing no polar bears yeah so so let's get back to drawdown and naming the naming the objective 
Well, the data means the first time on a year-to-year basis, well, the way we use it anyway, the first time on a year-to-year basis where greenhouse gases peak and go down. Mm-hmm. And uh, that hasn't happened for a long time. <laughs> I think we can all, though, relate to that. If you've got a goal and it seems insane, name it and look at it every day until your brain can find a solution for it. That's yeah. that's how I created anything that, that I have or jumped off giant cliffs that people, you know, totally yeah. were impossible. We believe the world into existence, you know. <laughs> I love that. Say it again. We believe the world into existence. And so having you know, an image or an aspiration of the future is how the future is created. You know, it's not created by passivity. And in, therefore, if we're adding adding our energy to all these all these statistics that are so doom and gloom, we're, we're supporting more problems. Global warming is a problem that defies the English language in terms of a word that is big enough to hold it. You know, crisis, no, you know, e- you know epic, no, I mean, gnarly, no, I mean, you know, any word, you know, that you could use to try to, to describe, you know, the tremendous challenge that it poses to civilization is inadequate to the scope on the inertia, the power of the problem, you know. But so what's happened, I think, is that the science has been so good at the IPCC studies impact. That is, if this happens, what will the impact be? That's what it's supposed to do. That's its charge, you know. And and only solutions came later to the IPCC. And so the communication from science or science communication from others, the media has been about the probability of things going wrong and when, and uh, or the correlation of things going wrong right now with you know climate change and being accelerated by global warming, such as two Cat Five hurricanes hitting Puerto Rico in I guess within a span of thirty days, and um, so that's been the communication. That's what we're used to, we're accustomed to it. We and the problem with that is that it's always a problem. And the problem with it, something always being a problem is if we get inured to it and we, we, we actually, it's, it doesn't work anymore. And we actually numb that out because we have to function as moms and dads and people and students and professor, you know, professionals and whoever we are, we have to function, you know. Um, you know, eat, sleep, work you know, pay for things, take care of family, whatever it is we do. And and you can't do that if you're in a state of, you know, um, complete, you know, cortisol, you know, awakening, you know, like uh, adrenalized. And so what we haven't done, though, is look at the problem statement, look at the problem going, wow, interesting, that's some problem. Now, what are all the possibilities inherent in that problem? Like, look at this, look at this. I mean, the path is found by through the obstacle. Mm, beautiful. License is a you know, license. That is, you know, you have everything you need. You're not going to come out with good solutions, innovation, design if you have everything. It's when you have basically constraints. Constraints create breakthrough, uh, breakthroughs. So the science and the probabilities that people talk about are true, but... We have to take them as a way to and reimagine, to design, you know, our way through. And that's what's been missing. 
because that's what brings people in. That's what gets them excited. That's what gets them engaged, you know, and instead of being enervated and depressed by it. Yes. So we only have a few minutes left, but uh, could you give me some of, give us some of your favorite stories or your favorite examples of, well, first maybe just name, let's just name the top, top six <laughs> solutions. <laughs> The top, uh, yeah, the top solution is refrigerant management, which is to manage the gases that are in air conditioners and refrigeration systems because they just have a uh, greenhouse warming potential of thousands and thousands of times, thousands and thousands of times greater than CO2. And they do escape and they get into the atmosphere and they stay there for a really long, long time. So that's number one. Number two is actually uh, onshore wind turbines and uh, number three is reduced food waste uh, number four is a plant-rich diet it's not vegan if, if you want it to be it can be and number five is tropical forests and number six uh, is educating girls and number seven is family planning and both are family planning educating girls is a different pathway to family planning and eight is solar farms and number nine is silvopasture and number ten is uh, rooftop solar and uh, a very surprising list really we didn't see it coming at all and these are not the things that we hear on a daily basis change your light bulb and buy no. a Prius no. um, they're they're so much more like well of course <laughs> and and we all yeah. have influence in in a part of this because it's it's an entire system that needs reforming um, could you share a few of of the the stories from the solutions going on right now I mean, I love the cow story. Um, I love the example you gave today um, with some of these big companies jumping on board and as examples. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's missing in the climate conversation and dialogue, I mean, it's movements and they're trying to stop pipelines and sue Exxon. And, you know, we've got this thing that oil companies are really bad and, and that if we stop them, somehow good is going to arise. And... Certainly, we stop, we need to stop combustion and fossil fuels. No question about that. But, but I think it, it what happens is it just gets so limiting and narrow and small, you know. And not to say those things uh, aren't happening, but it it sort of blots blots out the sun, if you will, and it blots out the sun of innovation, imagination, and we don't really have any way of availing ourselves to the tremendous breakthroughs that are occurring with respect to uh, solutions to reversing global warming. And then one of them is uh, Proton Bar and Fusion, which is a company in, in Rancho Margarita in Irvine, California, that has been working on this for almost 20 years, 18 years in stealth, which they wouldn't tell a soul about what they were doing because Fusion is a technology that's always 30 years off. And so Fusion has been you know, a, a disaster, and so that's why this company kept its mouth shut. And now fusion energy is different than fission energy. Fission is you divide an atom, and fusion means you put two atoms together. And either way, you get E equals mc squared. The fact is, when you do that, there's a tremendous amount of energy released, which is what Einstein pointed out. And fusion produces more energy than fission, actually. But this case, with proton, uh, with boron, there's no radiation at all. In other fusion technologies, there's neutrons. They're working on this, and they discovered, uh, really, um, because they have such huge storage issues with energy to fire up the reactor, 
um, that um, ways uh, with hardware and software to make every storage system in the world, particularly in EVs, um, thirty percent more efficient, or to reduce its energy use by thirty percent. And that was just an accident, inadvertent, and and it comes back to this idea of forcing functions. You know, this idea that if you if you try to do something really difficult, infusion is trying to make starlight on Earth. You know, it's a mm-hmm. difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the but sun. at least they were willing to set that goal, put it out there, versus the, mitigating. Yeah, the current situation. Yeah, they had a goal, and they and they're fierce about it, and they're and I think they're they're going to succeed. But but on the way, they came up with other solutions, and and I feel like the whole world, if we had drawdown as a as a forcing function, you know, let's do it, let's do it fast, you know, and let's do it. We it would just release and unleash, you know, a tremendous amount of breakthroughs, uh, innovations and technologies and so forth that. Um, may come about eventually, but I think they come about a lot faster in ways which are so surprising that the 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 storage technology, the power system technology that TAE came up with, total surprise to everybody, even experts in the field now who've seen it going, who would have thought? Or and and that, that yet when you see it, it's like, yeah, it totally makes sense and it's obvious. Well, it wasn't obvious, no. and it, and it didn't come from a mindset of mitigating the way it is mm-hmm. it came from setting it setting a goal and then committing to the mindset that could create that goal yeah i mean because essentially we are not going to find the solutions from the same mindsets that created those solutions or created the problems yeah. and that's that's the way i think people have been looking at this problem and how are we going to fix the problem well we can't fix it with the same the same mindset yeah that's, einstein famously pointed that out and and so by naming the goal, Drawdown, you know, we then, it's an expansion, you know, it's, it opens things up, mm-hmm. it does close things down. Exactly. And, and thinking that if we win a lawsuit against Exxon, it's going to make a difference, it's just not true. It right. doesn't really change, it doesn't solve anything. It may result in a big fine, it may result in all sorts of people feeling they're vindicated. Exxon really did do what it did, which is to basically fund climate denial. And that is really a shameful thing, no question about that. But but it's not going to solve the problem. Right, you know? so let's put our focus on the solutions. Yep, yeah. Because we, don't, we only have a finite amount of energy, and we are brilliant minds. Yeah. So let's get to it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what's so beautiful about this upcoming generation is that, I don't know, I guess I could be in the millennial category, but the adults told us we could do and be anything, and mm-hmm. we believed you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as much as people are complaining about the millennial generation, um, you told us we could do anything. So if, if you tell us that we can f- solve these solutions, and we absolutely can. Yeah, and, well, and we are that co- we can be the solution. Yeah, we can implement them. I or create, create them. them. Yeah, I I think in one of my commencement speeches I said, you know, do what needs to be done, you know, and check only check later to see if it was impossible. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Anything else that you think is important to share? Um the the thing I touched on today earlier though, which is this thing of 2 and 4, this preposition we think that climate change or global warming is happening to us, you know, that people messed up and that especially millennials, you know, why didn't you, how did you do this? And, you know, I inherited, mm-hmm. inherited this problem and, 
you know, you guys didn't have your act together or you're too selfish or blah, 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 blah. That the whole thing makes you, makes you a victim, makes you the object. Mm-hmm. And when you're the object, you know, you're so disempowered. And then you actually blame others. You look to others to be responsible for mm-hmm. parties. You demonize, you divide. More you, separation. More separation. And actually the right way to look at everything in your life, but especially global warming, is that it's happening for you. It's feedback from a system that's sacred, which is this beautiful earth and the atmosphere. And the feedback is 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 a kindness. It's a caution. It's mm-hmm. uh, It points to a different way of being and doing things in the world. It's the same way when we get sick. It's, it's, it's just a feedback, it's right? Feedback. And yeah. it's feedback to shift. It's feedback to shift to make yourself healthy again. And it's not something again. to fight. No. You brought up in your talk today the, the way we need to change language. We're not... F- it's not about fighting global warming. No, or it, climate change. Was, yeah, yeah, talk about that a bit. Well, climate change, uh, you, people say fight, combat, climate change, and they use these words, but obviously climate change uh, is, is, climates are supposed to change. That's what they do. That's, what a, that's the function of a climate. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I understand what people mean, you know? They don't want too much change or the wrong change, but there's, but the, the, you can't fight change. Change is ubiquitous, constant, Everything, whether it's animate or inanimate, everything in this world is changing every nanosecond. Um, even things that we think like rocks, you know, they're actually changing on a molecular level. And living systems particularly, you know, changing very rapidly. And really, atmosphere is part of a whole entire living system, you know, because it interacts with oceans and land and, you know, biota and, and living you know, trees and shrubs and photosynthesis. So it's part of a living system and it's supposed to change. So that's where the, 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 the so that's fighting climate change, but then the whole verb fight is the, the real problem because uh, it implies that climate or the atmosphere is other, you know. Separate. Yeah, separate, mm-hmm. distinct. And, and then what? Um, then the earth? Than nature, than life, than, and that othering, you know, if, the, if I can use that word, is really the disease of the modern mind. The disempowerment. Mm, well, yeah, disempowerment, or um, really, um, you know, the, the the seeing the other as the enemy, seeing the other as a problem, seeing the other as lesser, as lower. Or blaming, or mm-hmm. yeah, and then from that comes all sorts of. Uh, actions that are horrific, you know. Uh, Absolutely. From from actually from um, rape and sexual abuse to war. I right. mean, they all come from seeing the world as other, mm-hmm. whether it's a woman or whether it's a country or whether it's a culture, or whether it's a you know African American party, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I I, f- I feel like people always ask this question, so I've got to, even though I know your answer, and it is, you know, what can we do? And one of my favorite answers I've heard you give, because he doesn't like to tell people what to do. I love that. Um, But, you know, add to this from what I heard you say earlier today, which is we all have areas of influence uh, in the world that we live. And you know where your influence is. And you uh, implement that in, in your way. You said it really well, actually. People often... I mean, I'll give talks and there'll be a Q&A and somebody will stand up and say, It's like well, the first question. It's just why I have to yeah, ask it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they'll say, well, okay, thank you. This is great. You know, you know, what can I do? What should I do? Or 
what do you want me to do? Any variations on that? And I'll say to them, I have no idea. We just met. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know you. I know nothing about you. I can see you're a a man or a woman, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I have no idea what you should do, you know? And if I should tell you what you should do, you should run. Because Mm -hmm. that would be, you know, basically telling you what to do is like, that's not what I'm here to do, you know? I'm here to create the means whereby you can get lit up and Empower find out you. what you want to do and you know and do something that's meaningful to you and so forth and and I'm here to support that but not to be the person who dictates or thinks they know what some other person should do. And it just shows the system that we've built mm-hmm. that says, yeah, you are to take orders. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> Instead of to find your way and to and for others to support yeah. what is intrinsically within you. However, having said that, I mean, we will have on the website with each solution uh, two tabs coming. One's educate. You want to know more here. Resources. You want to do something here. Yeah. These are ways that you can activate. You can make the solution happen, accelerate it, you know. So number one, get educated. <laughs> yeah, always. <laughs> always. Always. You know, and those understanding is the basis of all compassionate action and and uh, meaningful effective action as well you know it comes from understanding yeah and then number two was educate i heard you say and then find your means of influence of where you can have an impact in the community or the office building um, well what i'm saying is that yeah i mean your impact is going to be where you're respected and where that may be you know Maybe in many places, you know, at work, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your family, um, in organizations that you belong to, that's where you can be effective. It's not sort of do something out there somewhere that doesn't exist, you know, where you're a loner. It's actually where people um, know you and you know people and they, uh, you respect those people as well, not just them respecting you. And that's where conversations and Activities can happen that actually accrete and make a difference. Um, and then the other thing I heard you say this morning that I just love is just commit, make the commitment. Yeah. Well, that's for businesses. People, what business say what to do? I said commit. I mean, and and commit and admit. You know, admit you don't know what to do, but commit that you want to do it. And and that's where you begin, which is like, I know I'm you know ABC whatever uh, business, and I know that we need to reverse global warming otherwise there's not going to be a planet to live on that's livable and uh and so just commit to it you know and you don't have to know what to do to commit to an outcome and you do have to realize however that unless virtually all of us do it all the businesses all the cities all the countries you know unless we all do it together it's not going to happen you can't have some people saying i, I commit and others saying ah forget about it we all have to do it. And so you can't make somebody else do it. You can only do it yourself. You can only commit your own company to it. And that's really important. What a fascinating way to bring us all together. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Safe travels. Okay. Thank Until you. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to learn more about Paul's approach to climate change, go to www.drawdown.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, give us a review on iTunes. Help spread the word and be sure to subscribe. Our theme is Wings by Nikolai Halaitis and used under the Creative Commons license. Until next time, see you in the mountains, unicorns.